grateful for Tim O'Shara guiding us most of the way through the class. The overview of the former prophets here has been outstanding. It's been encouraging. Um, just being able to review the, the Word of God and its, and its uh, revelation as it unfolded to us over time has been helpful for us to gain perspective. And it's been our mission to try to cover these things quickly, briefly, but helpfully <laughs> in a short period of time. So, of course, tonight our mission is the Book of Kings, both books, First and Second Kings. So if you want to reach for your Bible as well, can you juggle a Bible and a phone at the same time with your notes there? I'm sure you can. And I'll trust if the phone's out on your lap, you're following me, not uh, checking score scores or something silly like that. All right. Well, once again, um, I thought maybe Tim would be in the room. If I get hung up, he's going to help me, I think. But uh, anyway. So thanks for coming tonight. This is our last one of six as we try to cover the Book of Kings. We have a task of trying to cover 400 years of Hebrew history in 45 minutes. So buckle up. Just to put it in perspective, Tim did two classes that took 400 years, so we're going to try to smash it into one. So Lord willing. I will try try not to overwhelm you. There are over 40 kings listed in the Book of Kings, and... uh, Sometimes they're, to make things even more complicated is sometimes you have kings in the north with the same name as the kings in the south. Same name. And uh, keeping them distinct and separate and their significance for why, why they're recorded is uh, kind, of a, kind of a mind bender. So I'm uh, not intending to do that to you tonight. We're going to try to make it simple and yet helpful. Okay? Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Not you all settled in and we'll ask the Lord's help in our time together. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of opening your precious words tonight, and we thank you for the revelation of, of these kings to us. Lord, as we read and page through this, this book, uh, we're struck with the amazing magnitude of your patience and your long-suffering and your ability to endure with sinful mankind. And uh, Lord, yet your mercy is good to bring prophets and to bring warnings and to bring uh, the truth and uh, Lord, you are, you are after the hearts of your people to turn them to yourself, to, to obedience and to faithfulness. We thank you for the persevering heart of God that, uh, that continues with us when we are wandering. Lord, give us the ability to recognize and to repent and to turn and to, uh, to restore um, our relationship with you and walk faithfully with you as David did. And uh, Lord, as we, as we see this this afternoon, I pray for your help in our time. May we use it and steward it well to your honor and to your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, we've been on a journey for through the last several weeks through the former prophets from the book of Joshua all the way through Kings. And we have a particular interest in a high-level overview that's going to do a cut that we hope to do three things. Primarily, number one, we want to unite the distinct parts of your Bible into one whole. <laughs> that they're not that you're not thinking of them in terms of disparate parts, and that they, we want to explain the basic impetus and the rationale for the arrangement of the material and how it why it's important and why the particulars of the books relate to the uh, overarching theme and message. And then thirdly, we want to seek to be better to better understand what's propelling the narrative of these books forward in development in this revelation. So. There's some things that have been helpful in tracing sort of the narrative and the, the overarching um, storyline of each book. 
The biblical authors, Tim has said several times, clearly have a purpose and a, an intention in writing their works in the way that they have done it. So it's crucial that we, as understanding their, we understand their intentions and how they've arranged their accounts because they're shaping that message. And we, don't, we will misinterpret the accounts if we don't first grasp the original intention. And uh, you know these, these books that we're reading are not simply meant to be just historical records chronicling um, the particulars and incidentals of Israel's ancient past. No, it's far more significant than a historical record, for these books were written to be a prophetic perspective upon the events. They're construed together to demonstrate the greater theological significance of why they took place. And I use that term prophetic significance on purpose. When I say that, I, I, I mean to imply that the authors are seeing these historical events and they're interpreting them and their significance for us from God's perspective. These events are prophetic, not in, always a, not in the sense that they always are explicitly foretelling the future, but that they have an explicit ramification and direct bearing upon God's interactions with humanity. So the prophets, the prophetic perspective, um, is important to recognize in the, in the writing of these books. Um, Alfred Edersheim put it this way, and I, I like his quote. He says, it should always be kept in view that the history of Israel is presented in the book of Kings from a prophetic point of view. In other words, it is history written from the standpoint of 2 Samuel 7, which Tim spent last time expounding to us, that, that great pinnacle of revelation where, we, where God promises to David, who's earnestly wanting to build a house for God, he says, no, I'm going to build you a house, David. A, a dynasty, a, a faithful descendant of yours will rule on the throne forever and ever. And uh, so this is the, the, the height of this, of this point in, in the Old Testament. And everything's kind of moving out from that point. And, and uh, this prophetic perspective is, is taken into account. The history of the Old Testament was not regarded as aggregate, an aggregate of facts to be ascertained by diligent research and treated with literary ability, but as the manifestation of Jehovah in the events which occurred. In other words, the kings didn't want you just to read this as a history book, but to see how God intervened and acted in the history of their nation and communicated specific divine revelation that was important for them to understand, to make sense of the meaning of what happened. Okay? Uh, so that's important to recognize. He says, for, um, uh, uh, Schreiner, pardon me, Thomas Schreiner put it this way. He said, what we have here is theological history. Theology and history are inseparable in the kings, not because of any sort of special pleading on the author's part, but because the writer was convinced that the historical effects were caused by theological principles that had been either heeded or ignored. That's what you're going to see in kings. Every time we mention or we run into a king, it's going to be his, his reign is going to be analyzed whether or not he was in accordance with biblical or theological principles and whether he succeeded in, in fulfilling the principles that he was commanded to, to do, and, or whether he failed. And so that's what's sort of driving the, uh, the analysis of this whole book. So we haven't been just doing a historical survey together. Hopefully you haven't been sitting here under the mistaken perception that uh, we're curating a tour of history of Israel's ancient past. Uh, rather, it's through history that we're being keyed in on huge theological truths it's quite evident that you read the Book of Kings and the, authors or the author or authors are absolutely fixated uh, and exercised by the conviction that God is faithfully conducting himself with his people on the terms and conditions of the covenant that he's made with them. Specifically, the covenants he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then 
Moses, and then most recently in our last study with David. So the purpose of the book of Kings, I'll put it this way. Much of the content in Kings is also recorded for us in the book of Second Chronicles. But there is a difference with the way it's presented in this book because the author or authors of Kings weren't simply just trying to write you a court history of what had taken place under each king's reign. They were seeking to make theological use of the past to provide exiled Jews now, in, now under captivity in either Babylon or there among the nations after Assyria took over Israel, north, the northern part of Israel, Trying to make, they're trying to make theological use of the past to provide these Jews with true interpretation and explanation of the conditions and circumstances of the events that led to the fall of Jerusalem, to the destruction of the temple and the subsequent exiles of Israel to Assyria and Judah to Babylon. So history looked back upon from the perspective of Jews now in captivity was going to be interpreted so they would learn the lessons that they should have learned while they were enduring that time now in the aftermath, seeing, seeing captivity now and experiencing in all of its awful reality, they were to look at the history, and history was going to have a clarifying and elucidating power for them. It was going to drive them, hopefully, towards faithfulness in the formation of biblical conviction. So this is how the authors of the Kings were using Israel's history. They're gleaning from the sins of the past in order to rebirth and rekindle a true faith and worship of Yahweh in the future. Uh, this reminded me... The way the, the way the authors of the Kings wrote their histories reminded me of, a, of, a, of the introduction, S.M. Houghton's introduction to the book on uh, the Reformation in England. I love this quote he wrote. This is what makes this different for us in the book of Kings. He says, in the modern age, it has become almost an axiom of the historian that he must treat his subject scientifically and above all impersonally, concealing to the last degree his own personal convictions, if perchance he possesses any and writing as if he possessed neither conscience except for the establishment of cold historical truth, or nor faith. As a strictly academic exercise, this method may possess some merits, but as a vehicle for the stimulation of interest in the mind of the average reader, it conspicuously fails. History, to live, must pulsate with the life of the historian. He must himself be stirred by the events on which he chooses to dilate. That's what the kings are trying to do. They're trying to hope, inspire both hope for the future for Israel and to motivate captive, Jews in captivity to live in accordance again with the covenant principles in a faithfulness and obedience to, before God. And I think that that's exactly what makes kings special and unique in the way it's recorded for us. What we possess in these books is a special kind of history, substantially materially different from any other objective or detached historian. What is uniquely presented to us here in this book is kings as a history recounted and interpreted by God himself. God is his own historian. And he's personally and deeply invested in telling his story to create the effects and influences, not just in your mind, but also upon your heart and life and your conscience. So these recorded events and lives of the kings aren't just anecdotal curiosities. They're not just happenstance records. This is not history stuck on loop repeating itself endlessly ad nauseum, though you're probably going to experience a sickening sense of deja vu every time you open the book. But be assured that the last 384 years covered in the book of Kings is not just a pointless tight spiral leading to nowhere, but it's a progressive linear development of the points that, for, that lead us forward to anticipate a new and better David, someone even better than Josiah, 
So what we're looking for is the book of Kings opens up not with a nostalgic pining for the glory days of, gone, of the time past. It's, it's a spiritual synopsis of almost 400 years of history written from about 970, the 9th century, or uh, yeah, 9th century to 586 B.C. And it covers about 20 northern kings in the northern, uh, in the northern kingdom over 200 years and about 21 southern kings over twice that long. And it's a story told to remind the readers of the blessing that accompanies godly wisdom and covenant faithfulness. It reminds them of the degradation and the affliction that comes with idolatry. And it builds a hope and anticipation for the promise of a restored kingdom to be forever ruled by a, a greater son of David. So what are some primary things that we're gonna, the major theological truths that we keep bumping into again and again in this book? I'm just gonna list them here for you. And I think you'll see them as you read through the book yourself. First and foremost, it's a, there is an emphasis upon Yahweh being God alone. Among all of the gods of the surrounding uh, peoples around Israel, Yahweh alone stands far and above and apart, away from the rest of them as supreme and sovereign and in control. He's, he's God of the mountains and the God and the, of the plains, as they'll, say, as they'll discover. And this would have been important for reasons I'll later share with you. Um, for them to understand in captivity. Yahweh also controls the events of history. Uh, things are not on autopilot here. God is actively directing the affairs and controlling the rise and fall of each king in precisely the right sequence. Yahweh defends the parameters of his own worship. Once again, we see that there'll be, there'll be chances for people to mix or syncretize together elements of worship of Baal and other false gods alongside the, the worship of Yahweh and trying to mix the two and mingle the two uh, creates massive problems for the nation and Yahweh defends the parameters of his worship. Yahweh delivers upon his promises. He's a promise-keeping God. As we'll see, he continues to bear with his people and brings each promise uh, forward and, and uh, carries through with that. Yahweh is just and righteous lawgiver. He, his law is perfect. Yahweh is determined to fulfill his covenant and place a faithful descendant of David upon the throne. So these are all in the, in the, in the ram, <laughs> in the memory of, of, of the people as they're reading through this at, from the perspective of captive Jews, uh, from, from their point in captivity. I have uh, kind of hijacked the uh, animation video here from the Bible Project, because I like how they illustrate this, and I'm a visual learner, so this will help draw you a picture and establish it firmly in your mind. David, of course, unites the kingdom um, himself, both north and south, under himself, when the people were just but a, barely, a, basically a tribal group, and leads them to build the kingdom initially. Uh, David and his uh, mighty acts, his mighty men there take power, and God uh, is uh, glorified and pleased to raise up David and bring David to the throne. In the promise there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he makes the promise to David specifically of a messianic king that will descend from his line, both to, and that descendant will establish God's kingdom over all the nations surrounding Abraham, and will fulfill the promises to his father Abraham, the ones that we've read about in Genesis chapter 12 at the beginning of this session, at the beginning of these sessions. However, the book of Kings records the later fall of all the subsequent kings after that, they begin to lead in ways that obviously are not like David. 
And so one by one, as each of them hopeless, hope, are hopelessly disappointing, uh, we are built up in our anticipation of that kingdom is to come who will fulfill all of the covenant promises in every regard. And, and um, so uh, it may, you, have to, you have to sort of ride this with them and understand that each disappointing story is making for a greater understanding of the Messiah's role and the, and the, the, the son of David as he um, will assume the throne in the future. So... As we understand that, we're going to look at, first of all, the rise and reign of Solomon. Okay? We're just sort of sweep through this rather quickly from chapter 1. First Kings chapter 1, first through chapter 11, is the, really the story of the rise and the reign of Solomon in the aftermath of David's transition. As David is transitioning off the scene, we see him declining in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He's about 69 years old as you open the book. And he's, he seems kind of old and powerless at this point. Not because of uh, he was generally not because of anything else other than perhaps it was because he was a, had a strenuous wife uh, life <laughs> maybe of a wife too but life I meant to say weakness there and I said wife Lord maybe you know better than I I don't know uh, strenuous life no doubt no doubt his wives were not helpful in that you know, so. But you'll see that it was a strenuous life in milita- as a military general. His turmoil began in his house and the aftermath of his sin with Bathsheba. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 12 tells us that because David sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, that the Lord was going to bring the sword to his house and it would never depart. Um, the, thus says the Lord in verse 11, 2 Samuel 12, 11, it says, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take of your wives, take your wives before your eyes and give them, um, give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in the broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, and I will do this thing before Israel on all, and under all the sun. And so in the first opening verses of chapter one of First Kings, we see not only David declining, but we see Adonijah makes a bid for the throne. I say make a bid that like it's some kind of political thing. It's it's more or less a takeover. It's it's like it's like the rebellion under Absalom again. In fact, Adonijah is described in the same sorts of ways that Absalom was. But Adonijah is the fourth son of David. Amnon, the firstborn, of course, had been killed by the thirdborn Absalom, and Absalom had been killed by Joab, David's general. So Adonijah is basically Absalom reborn, and he exploits his father's weakness and, and disengagement from his, his role as king, and he makes a political play to ally, for him, ally to himself Joab, the, the former general, and Shimei, Shimei and Abiathar, the priest, come to support him. And with this coalition he begins to form around him, he's beginning to look like a very strong replacement for David. Nathan, the faithful prophet from First Samuel or Second Samuel chapter eleven, reemerges on the scene, and he intervenes. Nathan and Bathsheba inform David of the coalition that's coming around Adonijah, and they realize that this spells danger for Solomon and for Bathsheba; they are going to lose their lives, and that Solomon is the one to whom David had promised the kingdom in succession. So, after uh, this is the first of several confrontations throughout the Book of Kings, where you see prophets calling upon the king to take up the Lord's interests and to establish a lawful observance and order in the land. Uh, that's a theme that you'll see again and again. God brings a Solomon, or brings a Solomon, brings a prophet to a king to confront him and charge him to take up the law and to stand and to, and to rule 
by God's interests. Solomon is anointed king over his anointed king in Jerusalem, and Zadok, interestingly, is called upon to anoint Solomon as David's rightful successor. Who's Zadok? Zadok's one of the faithful priests under the line of Eleazar. He is uh, faithful to the line of David, and uh, he's actually, I believe, heir to a covenant that was made. We won't get into that, um, but he basically he's that faithful priest who will serve Solomon faithfully in the days ahead. Adonijah hears the news of Solomon's appointment and pleads for mercy as his coalition quickly dissolves once they hear Solomon has now been appointed. Solomon initially then grants mercy to his brother, Adonijah, but when Adonijah later, after the death of David, comes and requests Bathsheba to Bathsheba to give him David's consort, Abishag, Solomon seeks to establish an unrivaled, uncontested position of, of, the, of the throne, and he has Adonijah killed. Well, and he, and he kills Joab as well. And he kills Ab- uh, and Ab- Abiathar, rather, the priest that was there who had abandoned David during the days of his trouble, was spared, but removed from office in accordance with a promise that was given to him, to the house of, actually to the house of Le- uh, Eli, back in chapter 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel chapter, no, it is 1 Samuel chapter 2. 26 through 27. I've left, left some of that in the notes. If you get those later, you can read that all yourself. David then charges Solomon to remain faithful to the Lord. And as David speaks here in chapter 2, of verses 1 through 10, you can hear echoes of language we've read before. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 tells Joshua commands, uh, 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 Moses commands Joshua to be strong and show yourself a man. But be strong and be very courageous, Right? And so David, borrowing language from Joshua, says, be strong and show yourself a man. He, he also refers to another important passage, Deuteronomy 17. And for, uh, if you're looking here, chapter 2, verse 3. He tells him to keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So he's once again given the commission to obey the commandments, the rules, the testimonies, the statutes of the law. And in doing that, he would ensure his prosper, his prosperous future and reign, that you may do those wherever you turn. This is so critical because this gets reverberated throughout the book. Okay? Second Samuel chapter 7 is also referred to, David recalling the promise he received from the Lord. And he tells him in verse 4, chapter 2 here, he says that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if, if your sons pay close attention to their way, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Well, there you go. That sets up basically the, the criteria by which every, every son of David thereafter is going to be evaluated. Does he indeed walk in faithfulness before the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul. And if they, and we shall find out at the end of the book if there is a man left on the throne of Israel, which I think we can, we've read the book before, we understand what's coming. But David's final decree is to be carried out by Solomon. Solomon is tasked with taking care of the problems that are leftovers from his father's failed handling in the rain by putting Joab and Shimei to death when, because they sided with Absalom in the coup for David's throne. So you read that at the end of the book, end of chapter 2. And then we see Solomon's acquisition of wisdom. What a powerful chapter here in chapter 3. Fascinating here as it opens up, though. 
then Solomon, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Solomon's marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh is signaling that all is not well in Solomon's heart already to start here, that he is indeed in need of wisdom from God to rule so great a people. Now, the, the, verse, the passage goes on quickly to tell us that in verse 3, now Solomon did love the Lord. He loved the Lord walking in the statues of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And I, I think that's signaling the fact that there was no temple, there was no place for there to be any sacrifice made. So Solomon's loving the Lord and sacrificing him, but again, recognizing and pointing to the fact that there is no temple yet, as much as David desired it. So when the Lord appears to him in a vision and offers to grant him whatever he requests, Solomon doesn't ask for long life or the removal of his enemies or riches, but for divinely bestowed wisdom from God. And the thing is said in verse 10 to greatly please the Lord. The Lord decides to give him his request and bonus. He gets riches and power and long life, and which is demonstrated quickly in the matter of the two prostitutes at the end of the chapter where two women there are ruled upon in the matter of the, the, the baby. You recall the story perhaps from verse 28? And that shows the kingdom that the Lord has given him mighty wisdom to rule the and perform justice in the land. And chapter 4 seems to be opening up with all kinds of amazing blessings that have been, up until this point, only dreamed of and hoped for and anticipated in faith. Uh, we see greatness. Solomon's greatness starts to, as he consolidates his rule, he applies the wisdom of the Lord to arrange and order the kingdom and set up officials underneath him to the great benefit of the entire nation. Solomon begins to earn that great name that was promised to Abraham in chapter 12. I will make you great, the Lord said to Abraham, and your nation, you'll be a great nation. And Solomon begins to realize these blessings that were given to Abraham. You'll see that, not only that, but quickly uh, in chapter four, verse 20, it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. What does that sound like? Another Abrahamic allusion here, isn't it? The descendants are, are abounding like sand on the seashore. God's fulfilling his promise. God's fulfilling his covenant. And then another allusion to the land. Israel was rising in universal prominence among the nations of the earth. The boundaries of the land are said to be extending from the river Euphrates to the border of Egypt. Genesis 15 verse 18 tells us that, it told, that God told Abram that to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river the river Euphrates. And we start to see Solomon begin to expand the kingdom and extend the kingdom to the regions that were promised beforehand. So we're starting to see these fulfillment of promises. There's peace and provision. The people dwelt in unity and prosperity. But while the king did tax them, it wasn't too grievous or burdensome. The people were joyfully able to provide for him. <coughs> There was notoriety, an increase in notoriety. Solomon's wisdom had excelled all the wise men of the earth of the east. His fame went into all the surrounding nations. Wise men and delegates from other kingdoms were sent to behold the wisdom of Solomon out of all the earth. The families of the earth were beginning to bless the children of Abraham. Gentiles like Hiram and the Queen of Sheba 
and later Naaman and other Gentiles were beginning to rise up and bless the children of Abraham. You remember that? Uh, that was part of the promise to Abraham as well. That he'd be a blessing to all those who bless him. Okay. Then it tells us that he wrote songs and proverbs, over 3,000 songs, 1,005, uh, sorry, 3,000 proverbs and over 1,005 songs were attributed to Solomon's pen. And the subject matter upon which he spoke was wide ranging from the, his, that his mind was as broad as the sand as the sea. That is to say, he was a subject matter expert in so many, so many different disciplines. And the only thing that we see here that's, that it seems to be out, jarring out of, out of alignment with what we would hope to see is that we start to see in this record that he's beginning to multiply horses, which seems like an incidental mention here, but it becomes more significant later. As we open up chapter 5, Solomon is assembling the temple. Solomon's assembling the temple here, and it marks an important development in the narrative. The temple, of course, is evidence that God's kingdom is erupting upon the earth, it is meant to mark the place where God's name dwells. And it's the extension of God's heavenly kingdom into the earthly realm that uh, we begin to see that there are clues even in the design that point to it being an earthly representation of a heavenly original. Its presence among the people of God was to prompt their exclusive worship to him and to him alone. And the symbols it used in its architecture were to remind us of the Garden of Eden and of the tabernacle. So chapter 5 is fascinatingly filled with lots of uh, descriptions, this very in, ornate descriptions of the temple, which I showed you the picture when you first came in, uh, things that were meant to evoke Edenic-type language and imagery, uh, recalling to us the, the fact that God was, was, again, making his dwelling place among men, and there in the temple. So it's, it's significant. In chapter 5, verse 13 through 18, we do see, though, Solomon didn't, do, didn't conscript labor from the Israelites around. He instead drew help, uh, drew labor or slaves from not Israelites, but the the Canaanites that had still inherited, that were still in the land. He used them to um, requisition the raw materials for the construction. The laborers were Canaanite inhabitants of the land, not the covenant people of God. So it appears that while Solomon controlled the land, he, they had not fully possessed it, as was commanded by the Lord under the ban in the book of Joshua. So this, of course, will present problems later as rival Canaanite gods will make a reappearance in the land. So in chapter 6, the means and methods by which the temple was to be constructed are seen. There is, a, I put here, the mediation and meaning portrayed in chapter 6, verses 11 through 37. We talked about the temple as a new garden. I'm going to skip through a little bit and go to chapter 8, which is another high point. This is where we say, Solomon, um, oops, sorry. Solomon makes an appeal in the temple, um, appeal to God in the temple that has seven petitions that I think are fascinating because each one of these petitions is a kind of a kind of a foreshadowing of the rest of the development of the book. Solomon, as he stands there on the in the completed temple, dedicating it to the Lord, makes seven particular requests, and he asks God to hear from heaven. In the case of these seven issues, these seven cases, in verses chapter eight, verse thirty-one through thirty-two, he seeks God to act in judgment accordingly to the guilty and reward the righteous. If the king does what is right, he experiences the covenant blessings, and if he does evil, he asks 
um, he asks God to, to judge accordingly. And so he's asking for God to act, what I, I put here, retribution, that God acts in this system of if they do well in obedience, reward them. If they do disobedience, judge accordingly, bring judgment. He also asks for, them, for God to recover the sinful people who face defeat before their enemies. Uh, Solomon in this prayer is sort of anticipating a time when Israel will be in defeat before their enemy. And, God, and he prays for God to mercifully deliver and recover his sinful people from the, when they repent, whenever they repent. He also prays in chapter 8, verse 35 through 36, that, that, he would give, that God would give rain and sustain the lives of the people when they repent and walk in the good way. Well, that sounds like what takes place under the ministry of Elijah, right? And uh, praying for, uh, and, and again, um, other, like, other things like that. So then he asks for remediation. I put here, I used all R's. I don't know why. I just like to capsize it in my mind, capitalize, you know, capitulate it all together. Uh, remove plague and sickness and affliction to render each man according to what is in his heart, asking God to remove sickness and affliction. And then he asks for God to accept the foreigner who comes to this place to pray. Uh, that, that Solomon had in mind the temple would be uh, not just a Jewish temple, but one that would be for the nations to come. And, anticipate, and of course, we see that um, is clearly in line with God's promise to Abraham and the missional aspect of the temple. Hear the prayers of your people, he, he asks for, when they seek to endeavor to fight their enemy, when they go the way that God sends them and maintain their cause when they pray towards his house. And then he asks them to remember them when they are carried away into captivity. Isn't this, isn't this something? Verse 46. It says here, I'm going to just uh, read this verse to you. 8, verse 46. It says, When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. Indeed, that's correct. And you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy. So they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those they have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you have given to their fathers the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them the objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive. Fascinating, isn't it? Make them the objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they have compassion upon them, for they are your people and inheritance of which you have brought them brought forth from Egypt, from the midst of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you have separated them from among the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, as you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord God. Fascinating that the, the book is framing up for, if you're a captive Jew and you're in exile and you're reading the Solomonic prayer here, Aren't you encouraged by that? That, 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 that? that it seems that there is an anticipation the Lord would grant forgiveness and mercy and give compassion and give you, give you a state in the captive time to be, have compassion shown unto you by, your, by the ones who control you? I mean, that would be encouraging. 
Solomon's accommodations to the ban and law are seen in chapter 9. So here's where we start to see Solomon's downfall. The Lord appears to Solomon a second time. This is important. He had appeared to him before. Now it's the second time. And the Lord reiterates the conditions of his relational presence in dwelling the temple structure. And Solomon is told that if you walk with me and keep my commandments, all my statutes, then I will, then I will, uh, I will be faithful to you. Okay? So um, the Lord appears to him and reiterates this. And the Bible tells us that it, he walks with the Lord for 20 years. 20 years. And then we begin to see Solomon's downfall. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 is key to this because as you start to read this chapter, chapter 9, you begin to hear Deuteronomy 17 playing in the background that Solomon begins to do everything that was forbidden under the law of Moses. Solomon begins by giving land in Galilee to the, and cities that are in Galilee to Hiram, the um, Hiram of Tyre there, and begins to give it away, give land away to Gentiles. Canaanite, Canaanite conscripted labor is used to build the palace and temple. The foreigners were placed in positions of authority over the people. The marriage to Pharaoh's daughter and bringing her to Jerusalem, of course, indicates that he was having foreign marriages. He begins to build a fleet of ships who are staffed by Hiram sailors, and they multiply gold and wealth, which is explicitly forbidden by uh, in Deuteronomy 17, that the opulence of this wealth would literally stagger our minds. As you read about in chapters 10, 14 through, um, 14 through, 13, uh, 14 through 23, Solomon would multiply horses, which is, again, something he would actually, it was not, he was forbidden to do, to build up a military strength, to be a military power, and to begin to rely on that military power for his influence and for his state. Solomon loved many foreign women and multiplied wives for himself. In chapter 11, we read verse 1. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor they shall they associate with you. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And he went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, and, the, and Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, it did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. Boy, it breaks your heart, doesn't it? Wow. So Solomon says, so the Lord says to Solomon, verse 11, because you've done these things and you have not kept my commandments and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Now that language sounds like something we've heard before, hasn't it? Turn back a few pages to Second Samuel or First Samuel, you'll hear that language being used by Samuel to Saul. Nevertheless, he says, I'm not going to tear this away in, in your days for the sake of your father, David. But I will tear it away out of your hand, out of the hand of your son. And however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So Solomon's kingdom begins to become just destabilized. 
He, he receives trouble from Edom in the south and now Damascus in the north. They begin to afflict the nation and put some vice grips on the nation and begin to, God uses these wicked nations as instruments of chastening to bring his people into obedience to him. And what he does here with Edom and Damascus, we find that he will use, it, he'll use those same types of uh, means later with Assyria and Babylon as well. So Solomon begins a, a great downfall. Jeroboam, who is a man among his staff, who is a mighty man uh, in charge of all the slave labor in the kingdom, uh, is rising in power and influence among the people and uh, makes an uh, attempt there to take the throne. Solomon realizes it and goes to try to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam narrowly escapes, gets to Egypt, and waits for his opportunity. Jeroboam was an industrious, serv industrious servant of Solomon's who had the charge of all the forced labor of the house of J Joseph. We read about him in chapter 11, verse 26 through 40. And Ad Ahijah, the prophet of God, finds Jeroboam. And Ahijah is wearing a brand new garment, the Bible says. And Ahijah reaches down, tears his garment off, and rips it into 12 pieces. And hands 12 of them to Jeroboam to illustrate that God was about to tear 10 of the tribes of Israel from the hand of Solomon, give them to him, while remaining control of just the one tribe, the tribe of Judah, along with, with Benjamin there mingled in, because they had served Ashtoreth and not walked in the path of David. The Lord then gives Jeroboam a David-like statement, says, if you walk in my ways and do what is right, and in keeping of my statutes and my commandments as, as David my servant did, I will be with you and build your house. As I built for David, I will give Israel to you. That's chapter 11, verse 38. So, Solomon attempts to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam gets away to Egypt, and when Jeroboam comes back, he looks like a Moses. He comes back out of Egypt, ready to take control from Rehoboam, who looks like Pharaoh, with all of his power and all of his wealth and his demand for more, more burdensome taxation. Um, so Jeroboam looks very enticing to the people of Israel. And so we see the next thing here. But before I do, let me just su summarize the section here. The first section of Solomon, which lays a great foundation for us. Why is this important? Well, the recounting of Solomon's rise to power and his, his love for the Lord, the faithful obedience to the law of Moses and the application of God-given wisdom to connect, uh, is connected to the realization of covenant blessings for the whole nation. Uh, in Solomon's prayer, the temple dedication, all the major movements of the subsequent narrative are foreshadowed. And the meteoric fall of Solomon is because you have not kept my, my covenant and my statutes. The blessings are forfeited, as he said it would happen in Deuteronomy 28. Yet God maintains the reader's hope by continuing the kingly line in Judah for the sake of his covenant to David. So while so much is lost, not all is lost, there is a succession for the line of David to remain. So Rehoboam comes to power. And here we see the second major part of the book, the major section of the book, is the rifting and rejection of the divided monarchy. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Well, they were, sound like they were made to meet in history, weren't they? Just the names are so well uh, parallel there. Rehoboam becomes king of Judah, Judah and seeks to go to Israel, the northern tribes, to consolidate his power to see whether they will also crown him king. And while they're there, they are quickly remind him of the heavy burden of taxation from Solomon's regime. 
and Rehoboam, ignoring the sage advice of his counsel of his father's advisors, Rehoboam opts for the foolish recommendations of his younger peers and says, what well, my, my father's, um, my, my pinky, my small finger will be heavier than my father's midsection. My father's, uh, in other words, saying, where my, he says, he actually says something like, if, where my father chastised you with whips, I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. Wow. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's pretty bold. Um, that's, that's just crazy. Okay, so anyway, this is what gives you an indication where this man is at in his, in his estimation of himself. And, the, of course, they hear that, and they quote some, uh, a quotation from an old political adage. What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. And they look back at, Dave, at the house of David, and they said, look to your own house. And they part company. Rehoboam rides back to Jerusalem, surely thinking, well, I've got the military power of the world. I'm the first, power, first order military power in the world right now. I can break them. I can make them submit. And yet he's met by a man, by a, another, another prophet named Shemaiah, who speaks from the Lord and says, do not attack. The house of the, and the house of Judah listens to the prophet and preserves these, this, this whole country from embroiling into a major civil war which is amazing grace of God there. Jeroboam ends up with the northern kingdom of Israel, and they send, for Jer- they send for Jeroboam from Egypt, sets him up as king, and within just a short time, in chapter 12, you see Jeroboam sets up in order to keep the hearts of the northern Israel from turning back towards Judah and go back to worship there, and their hearts begin to yearn for reunification. Jeroboam decides he's going to erect a place of worship, a rival place of worship, and sets up, none, believe it or not, he sets up golden calves. Um, who, and then he says, instead of being like Moses, he sounds like Aaron, because then he goes like this, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he sets up one in the northern and southern boundaries of the land of Israel and makes them to commit sin before the Lord. That phrase gets repeated and alluded to 60 other times in this book, as each northern king is compared to Jeroboam, who makes Israel to sin, to commit sin by establishing and and sanctioning the erection of all of these northern idolatrous, I call it, it's basically a parody cult of the sacrificial system and the law of Moses. Jeroboam is then confronted by an unnamed young man of God at the altar of his, his, his his, his altar up there in the north. I wish I could tell you the whole story. We're gonna run out of time. But uh, fascinating story. He tells Jeroboam, says, Jeroboam, this altar, he says, 300 years from now, there'll be a man born named Josiah. By name, names the man, Josiah will come, and he will take the priests who are sacrificing the abomination of sacrifices on this altar. He's going to sacrifice their flesh on this altar. Then this altar will be burned, and the ashes will be dumped out. In 300 years, that'll happen. And when Jeroboam sees the man and hears this, he reaches out his hand and says, seize him, and his arm stops and stays fixed. And he realizes that God is God has stopped his stopped him from being able to take any action against this prophet. And Jeroboam asks the prophet to ask the Lord to restore his hand, and he does. And Jeroboam asks the man to join him and refresh himself. And even though the prophet had been commanded to not do that, he subsequently leaves. It's an interesting story that takes place later but um, there is the confirmation that what that young uh, 
prophet had said would be would take place and eventually it does happen at the end under Josiah's reign in the end of second second kings we see then um, Abijah and Asa Abijah become is Jeroboam's son Abijah is sick here's a problem Abijah's sick Jeroboam needs help he needs God to move on his behalf and yet he knows because of his sin with the, with all the false worship and Baal worship going on up there um, that he's not going to get any help from the man of God. So his wife, desperate of course, disguises herself, goes to ask for healing for her son from a prophet with a similar name, Ahijah. Okay? Abijah the son, Ahijah the prophet. Um, once again, so she disguises herself, goes into Ahijah who by now has lost his sight. He's blind. Okay? Can't see anything. And she tries to pass herself off as a commoner and tries to ask the help of this man of God. Yet the blind prophet sees right through her ruse, right through her, de- her deceit, and tells her some heavy tidings. He says to her, you have done more evil than all who were before you. And as soon as Jeroboam's wife steps over the threshold, returning to her house, her son dies. And Nadab, which is another son in Jeroboam's family, assumes the power instead. God has marked Jeroboam's house for destruction. It'll soon come to an end. Meanwhile, in the south, Rehoboam is dealing with problems from Egypt. Judah's idolatry wasn't overtly idolatrous, but Judah still had the landscape dotted with increasingly marked by high places and sacred pillars and even male cult prostitutes. The Lord says that because Judah has done all evil, done evil above all the fathers has done, he raised up the king of Egypt to pillage and to raid the land of Judah and divest the house of the Lord of all of its golden treasures. Egypt comes in, sweeps in, gets into the temple and takes away the gold from the temple. Rehoboam soon passes away and Abijam, another similar name, becomes the, comes to power. And the Bible tells us in chapter 15, if I've lost you, rejoin me here. Chapter 15, verse 3, common phrase that we read again. Abijam walked in the sins of his father. And after Abijam, we wonder, is there any change? Is there any hope for change? And soon enough, in chapter 15, just two verses later, verse 11, it tells us that Asa, who is Abijam's son, here's an unlikely scenario, father's wicked grandfather's wicked he's two three generate he's two generations deep just wicked not walking in the ways of the lord asa comes and with a tender heart and the bible says asa represents the first of eight only eight kings in judah's history who were good chapter uh, uh, chapter 15 verse 11 says asa did that which was right in the sight of the lord like david his father he also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols which his father had made listen to this guy this guy's serious he also went and removed Maka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had a horrid image at Asherah. He was willing to take his mother and remove her from king, from queen. And Asa cut her down her horrid image and burned it in the book, brook Kidron. Um, but the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. And so we see some hope here. Asa begins, uh, although making serious uh, good, you know, he's making some serious headway here 
and doing some proper things, Asa soon becomes embroiled in an ongoing war with their neighbors to the north, their brothers. And Baasha, the king of the northern Israel, after Abijam, has now become his major problem. So Asa is in a trouble. Being in the south, he, cons- he barters, he, he arranges some agreement with Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and says, I'm going to give you payment. I'll take the payment from the treasury of the house of the temple, and I'm going to fund you to carry out campaigns of, of, of warfare against, my, against the northern kingdom of Israel and take them away from me, keep, keep them out of my hair. Uh, that's my loose translation, okay? Asa basically is bankrolling the Syrian forces as they ravage all the cities of Israel for Asa. Asa's, um, unfortunately, that's a, that's a bad thing, obviously. Asa's son, then Jehoshaphat, will succeed him in Jerusalem. And that brings us to the center of the book, which is all about one of the key pieces of this whole thing. And that is the response, the role and reaction of the prophets. The middle of the book of Kings is really features the prophets, the prophets in their ministry and God's merciful response to kings and kingdoms who are walking in disobedience and defiance to him. God responds in mercy and sends them prophets. In fact, um, we see over 30, up here, 40 kings are all represented, four, chief among the prophets. Of course, there's so many. We're not going to go through all of them. But the, there is one that's quite fascinating, and of course, that's Elijah. Elijah confronts Ahab. Ahab has come to power in the north. Ahab is, of course, um, that guy, that king who has... Um, He's from the house of Omri. He assumes power. He's going to feature prominently alongside of his Canaanite, Baal-worshipping, notoriously evil Jezebel, his wife. And Ahab is said to have done more evil in chapter 16, verse 30. More evil in the sight of the Lord than all the kings before him. Each king seems to be sequentially and subsequently worse in Israel. Yet God is merciful to raise up prophets for Ahab. And even Ahab, of all the kings... Even Ahab at times shows sensitivity and receptivity to the word of the Lord through the mouths of his prophets. I mean, this, if you're reading this and you think, man, maybe there's hope. If you're just like in the, in the book and you're thinking, maybe there's hope. If you don't know the outcome, even Ahab shows some softening. When, the, when Elijah has the showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal and God miraculously proves himself as the only God by delivering fire from heaven to the dismay and the shame and the disgrace of all the Abel worshiping prophets and they're put to subsequently put to death after Elijah shows that God is the God and all the people agree Ahab even humbles himself and begins to give worship to, to, to Yahweh the Lord then will restore the rain that he had withheld from the land and Elijah flees into the wilderness after that because Jezebel's not happy. Jezebel's upset. She threatens to kill the prophet Elijah. The Lord faithfully reminds him, though, in that wilderness experience that he's not alone. What good news that would be to hear. You're not alone. 7,000 also have not bowed to Baal in Israel. God will preserve them. And Elijah calls Elisha then to succeed him in the role of prophet. So, uh, there's so many things. In Elijah's ministry, there's miracle after miracle to confirm his authority and his, 
is um, that he indeed speaks for God. He's a, the prophets actually carry, have this role of being God's spokesperson. God's, I think, Tim, you might have used this phrase that they're like the covenant lawyers, that they are, um, that they are uh, representing God's terms and conditions for their covenant and explaining them and confronting people and calling them to observing them again and uh, prosec- in a, like a prosecutorial type of way. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is, uh, sorry, Elijah is doing throughout this whole book. Seven different miracles are, read, are, are here for us in the book. Fascinating and encouraging to see God working despite the political circumstances of the world that they were in. And then Elisha, who is the sub, you know, basically comes after Elijah, asks for that double portion for, of Elijah's spirit. And of course, um, it's interesting that there are 14 miracles, twice as many as Elijah had recorded in the book. So, just a section summary since we're almost out of time and I'm not going to get through everything. I'm just going to kind of summarize, really encapsulate here, compress down. The prophets were covenant lawyers pointing out to the kings that the people had strayed from obedience to the law of Moses. They spoke for God. They issued warnings and delivered messages signaling the intervention of God in response to covenant disobedience. Their presence in Israel was evidence of God's mercy and patience in seeking to turn Israel and Judah back to himself. Can't you see the can't you see the character of God in this? All of this bad news, I, I think you see that uh, even in this, this is, this is encouraging. The prophets are subject to danger. Indeed they were. And severe mistreatment for their frequent confrontation with the evil rulers. Exilic Jews would have found courage and encouragement for the provision that God had made for the faithful prophets. That he vindicated them. That he delivered them by his power. And for uh, that God gave that to them, certainly God had, would be mindful of their condition in captivity. So certainly that's, a, that's helpful here. In the uh, number four, the ruin in the road to Israel's exile. Um, a long line of kings that takes place here from chapters, First uh, Kings chapter 20, uh-huh, I think I'm going to go back here. Chapter, where am I at here? What's it? It's right there, Second Kings. Okay, yes. All right. So that carries us through to the middle of Second Kings. You know these were one book, so that, that break in the book division in your English Bible is sort of artificial in some ways. Uh, so those should seamlessly, that continuity of that narrative runs right through there. And we read the, about Elisha there at the end. At the end, we start to see uh, the road in the ruin in Israel in exile. And um, chapter... I'm just going to give you the section summary here. So there is enough is enough after, I don't know how many kings, nearly 20, 15, 19, I don't know how many is, nearly 20 evil kings in succession. Enough's enough. And a man named Jehu decides he's going to inaugurate a revolt and a rebellion. And he begins to zealously take up the sword and begins to attack the house of Ahab. And every, he, he, he finds every son of Ahab he can. He takes Ahab's body, throws it in a field. Na, in fact, not just any field. Na, Naboth's field, remember? <laughs> um, the man of God, or uh, uh, Elijah, had promised that Naboth, or that, that, uh, uh, that uh, pardon me, Ahab would be killed and his body would be left for the birds to eat in the field. So Jehu says, hey, sounds good to me. He makes that happen. Of course, Jezebel is then uh, thrown down from, the, from her window. She's there. Um, 
she accuses Jehu of being nothing more than a, like Zimri, the, the mercenary, violent uh, thug that he was who assassinated kings for no reason. Um, yet Jehu threatens that, it, you know, basically a, threatens Israel to deliver up all the sons of Ahab and kills every last one of them. And so you think now, finally, they have some reprieve from the, the wickedness. And <laughs> instead, um, that just, that, that bloody revolt leads to one ruler standing up and being disappointed and being killed, and another one being killed after that. We have a sequence there. I, I think it's Zechariah, Shalom, Menaim, and then Pekiah. All these are, you know, there's a, there's a lot here. We're just kind of glancing and touching off them. But again, more of the same in, some, in a lot of sequences, only worse and worse until chapter 17, which is key of 2 Kings. 2 Kings tells us that after Hosea had reigned, that Assyria came and they attacked the city capital of northern Israel, Samaria. And they took power. Okay, not only that, it says here... Um, I'm sorry, I'm in 2 Chronicles. 2 Kings chapter 17. And it says, an extended passage from verses 7 through verses 23 highlights for us the reasons and the rationale behind why Israel failed. I can't read the whole thing, but let me just give you a flavor for this as we read it. It says, now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and up from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And they were... And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nation which the Lord had carried away into exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. And so again, an, basically an itemized list of all the things, all the infractions of the covenant. And for that, they were, the, they were carried away and Samaria is burned to the ground. And there, the, the inhabitants of the land were dispersed among the nations and uh, separated out. Uh, from which they never returned. And so that's, that's what becomes of a people who are failing to, to walk in faithful obedience before God. So that section can be summarized this way. The extended application of why Israel fell would have been poignant for captive Jews. They would have, it would have reminded them to heed the warning here, to not serve other gods among the foreign peoples which they were dwelling to maintain their distinctive identity and their customs under the Mosaic law and to remain peculiar and pure from participation in the cult ritual, rituals of the pagan people, a pagan worship perhaps, I should say. The exilic Jews, like Daniel and Esther and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all these who were notable for their ability to distinguish themselves in faithfulness before their God in the midst of a pagan nation surrounding them, they would receive their directives to stand against the aggressive campaigns to assimilate them into the cultures in which they were living. Additionally, they would find compelling answers for the questions surrounding the power of God and of their, as a captive people. In other words, the question that's ringing in everybody's minds is, if God is so powerful, why are you in captivity? 
they would have to have an answer to that question. And the answer has been because we were not faithful to our God. That's why. This is not a reflection on the, on the power of our God. This is a reflection on our inability and unwillingness to keep covenant and faithfulness with him. Jerusalem fares slightly better for a while. For a continuing period of time, um, so, so Israel falls in 722 B.C., 200, about 200 years. I'm not doing math in my head. 586 B.C. is when Jerusalem will fall. Um, Jerusalem seems to do somewhat better because they have some outstanding kings at first. Hezekiah is an is a awesome, wonderful king <laughs> for, in many ways. Um, Hezekiah in chapter 18 of 2 Kings uh, stands against Assyria when they come to his doors and said, listen, we're going to starve you out. You better give up. Hezekiah says, no, we're not giving up. I will go to the Lord. I'm going to beseech him. And he stands firm. And God de delivers him. While the Assyrian military is encamped around the city, God simply afflicts the military in the night. 185,000 of the troops are killed by God himself directly. And they have no more will to fight them after that, and they move away. They, they, the threat is delivered. Hezekiah seeks to do all that he can to, to walk in ways that please the Lord. And it's a wonderful example. Hezekiah um, then has a son named Manasseh who <laughs> reinstates basically everything that Hezekiah had worked to remove. In fact, going so far as to take the Baal idols and move them into the temple complex and temple structures to worship. Now, now the pagans are, pagan worship of Baal is not done on hillsides and high places. It's done in the place where God had been, where the place had been sacred for God to be worshipped. And uh, Josiah works at the end here. Josiah works to reform. His, he is moved by the writings of, what, of all these kings. And uh, when, the, when they find the law, a copy of the law in the temple, structure and reads it he goes to work to establish the people again under Yahweh and is successful for a time until he's killed in battle and by that point there's no return at the end um, chapters 24 through 25 tells us that the Babylonians move in they destroy the temple they remove the the they leave nothing only the poor and the the weak behind and they take the best of the nation and they deport them to Babylon, this is where we start to read about Daniel and all of his friends there. And uh, the remaining stories are, are told to us in the latter part of the, of the uh, prophets there. But um, anyway, as, as we close this, we wonder, is, has God failed to make good to, on his promise to David? Well, you might think so. As we close up the book, there's this interesting little postscript at <laughs> the very last two verses, which just keeps the flame and the, of hope alive for, for the people. In chapter second, second Kings chapter 25, verse 27, it says, Now it came about in the 37th year of exile that Jehoiakim, who is, uh, I don't recall if he's the grandson. I think he's the grandson of Josiah. Okay, Jehoiakim had been carried off you know, with all, everybody else to Babylon, imprisoned there, but he's the king. He's the one in the line of David. He is the king of Judah in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month that evil Merodach, king of Babylon in the year that he became king, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him 
It makes me think of Solomon's prayer. No, when we're carried off in captivity, give us compassion from the people who hold, who hold power over us, right? Here it is. Joachim is spoken kindly to by the king of Babylon and, and, and set his throne above the throne of the kings who are with him. He is promoted and sits with the king in Babylon. Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and he had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king and a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So as we close the book, the, the writers here have left us the, the promise, the, the open here for God is maintaining faithfulness to leave a lamp unto David, to leave, a, to leave the, the hope for a messianic descendant still alive. And we anticipate that. In the, as, you, as you move forward. So, is God done with Israel and with David's line? Certainly not, because the last final thing we see is this hope with Jehoiakim. Um, and the remaining story uh, will be told probably in another session, one of these, another one of these equipping classes. Are we going to continue this equipping, these equipping classes to kind of overview some books? Is this it? No, yet. Okay, well, the rest of this story is really fascinating too. So, anyway kind of leave you on a cliffhanger right there but uh so david's line is preserved and the hope of messianic descendant remains jehoiakim is brought out of prison he's seated in the presence of an unlikely friend king of babylon lord preserved for himself a lamp unto david and while it's not it's not a happy ending it's a hopeful one and so uh we we remain anticipating to see how God continues to bring that narrative about. But hopefully that helps give you context for this book as you read it. It's not an endless cycle of just redundancy. It's all progressing right on God's timeline and right in his way to bring about every promise he's ever uttered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David, and all the covenant promises he, he will bring them to good and to pass in his time. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to look at this book in brief review. I know we covered a massive amount of ground probably too quickly and lord i certainly hope we didn't do injustice to it but lord in many ways we're just stunned by the magnificent patient loving kindness that you exhibited even in the time when you were even in the time when you were bringing judgment lord you were doing so to to bring about the good of your people and the good of good of um israel into, uh, at, at large and to set your king to set christ upon the throne and uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the reminder of this. Even, these, even all these Old Testament passages are just giving us big theological perspective for who you are and how you operate in the affairs of human history. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the time we've been in the book. We thank you that we, be, we ask that we be changed, that, our, that our, our faith would be formed and made more sturdy and convictions would be deepened by our time and exposure to this book. Help us to also walk in obedience and faithfulness by your grace and by your Holy Spirit's help. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.